the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. Look. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through, here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, Miles, and DR talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week, the underreported news with regard to race, justice, and equity, the news that you should know. And then I sit down and talk to Wendy Sawyer, the research director at the Prison Policy Initiative, an organization that I love that does incredible research around incarceration and all the things about criminal justice reform. We talk about bail bondsmen, a topic that I didn't know as much about, and I hope you'll learn about too. Here we go. The advice for this week is to reconnect with old friends. I had a great dinner with an uh, old college friend. We were in the same city, had dinner, had talked to him in a long time, and it was like, wow, we spent so much time together in college, but hadn't, hadn't just connected in a long time. So reach out to old friends. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles e. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay on Twitter as it still exists for now at D-E-R-A-Y. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for the memo. I'm just waiting for Black Twitter to send me the memo saying, girl, get off. And, you know, <laughs> but we still there. Oh, goodness. So, uh, so many things going on in the world. I feel like there's been one mass shooting after another. Um, really beginning with Colorado Springs, where a gunman walked into an LGBTQ nightclub and opened fire. And so, you know, I'm sure everyone, I'm hoping everyone is paying attention to this and and, and has been following it. Um, but five people were killed. Um, a lot more were injured. Um, the suspect is under arrest now. He faces five counts of first-degree murder, five counts of a bias-motivated crime causing bodily injury. Um, he's in police custody. Uh, I, I mean, it's just, I think what was, what seemed to bring, I mean, comfort's not the right word. I mean, I, I don't even know the word for it, but the, the gunman was brought brought down by folks in the nightclub. And it's been interesting because I've also seen conversations online by like folks in this nightclub bringing this gunman down, but yet in just interesting contrast between um, how, you know, how long a gunman was, was, was able to, to, to cause um, irreparable harm. So I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of commentary other than I feel like we're going to continue to go through this over and over again without a change to our gun laws and also without changes culturally in this country. But um, yeah, it's just continues to be wild. Well, we also had the mass shooting in Chesapeake, Virginia at the Walmart. We had a mass shooting in Atlanta. Um, 
I mean, this weekend was, or this past week was a lot. And it's so fascinating. You know, you watch the Sunday news shows and the Republicans say mental health crisis and the Democrats say, you know, ban assault weapons. And, you know, when I think about other countries and how one of the statistics that I heard on Sunday was that um, America has more guns than people. And like, we don't, I once heard Arnie Duncan say, like, he thought, he, he, he thought that America didn't care about black and brown people shooting each other. But after Sandy Hook, he realized that America loved guns more than they love its ch- our children. And like, it, it, it is baffling. If, if anything, like when, when car crashes were killing people, we were like, oh, you got to use your seatbelts. When cigarettes were killing people, we were like, ah, you got to stop smoking cigarettes. And, you know, all of these, this proliferation of guns, they were like, oh, no, we got to protect gun manufacturers and the Second Amendment. Like, what is this? What kind of illness is this that we have? You know, of course, I agree with, you know, a ban on guns. <laughs> and then I also agree with you know, mental health help. But the thing during these kind of moments that always I return to is the fact that we nurture a culture where people want to kill other people. But sometimes they we talk about um, these remedies that I feel like are just topical. But the thing is, for whatever reason, we know the reason America produces people who brutalize and murder other people and produces communities of people that harbor hate and that go and act out on that hate. And every now and then, and the now and thens are becoming more frequent, we get these big expressions of violence and it's not just a discussion on The View or, you know, some bad takes on a Fox News network. It's real results. People are really dead and we realize, wow, America really produces our monsters and they're not just born, they are made. And I think that we have to address the things that are, excuse me, we have to address the things that are creating these monsters. And if we don't do that, unfortunately, I don't think there's any type of thing topically, whether it be about guns or mental health, that's going to stop people who want to harm and kill other people from finding a way to harm and kill other people. The only thing I'd add is that I'm reminded that before the bullets come so many other things. And, you know, you think about what's happening with the right. You think about, like, all the homophobia. You think about how people have normalized homophobia as, like, a take and a position and, like, a political view. Like, it's no longer to some people, like, hate speech. It's like, oh, well, they just don't. Or they believe in family. And the normalization of hate like it necessarily is has an output. Like that is like what happens. Like people act on it. People feel like it is their duty. People feel like it's their call. Like, and we have just like Miles said, we've normalized this idea that like if you believe something strongly, you can act on it, even when it's hate speech. And that makes me worry. But I'm all I always think about like way before the bullet, it's like all these things that have just normalized this response to hate. <laughs> Or this, like this, the way that hate sort of manifests in the world, and um, and that makes me sad. And you know, it was a drag queen, like as we said, right? It was like a drag queen took the shoe off and beat the living daylights out of the shooter, <laughs> and a dad yes. who was there supporting a child, right? Like a reminder that we really, at the end of the day, all the you know, you think about all the money we poured into policing and security systems and bouncers and and metal, all the things. 
And when push came to shove, none of those kept anybody safe, right? In that moment, it was us. We kept ourselves safe. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's a word. That's a, I mean, and it, I mean, to your point, DeRay, about before the bullets, right? This is what these book bans are about, right? Like not allowing young people to learn about other young people and to empathize with young people who might be different from themselves. And so you breed this separation and this hate and this fear from the very beginning. And so, you know, over time, that is the logical outcome. It, and, and and we don't want to do anything about it. Like, uh, yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, the other thing we don't know what to do about is Kanye West. Girl, <laughs> 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 you and the segues really take me all the way out. I don't listen. I am. I'm tired of talking about Kanye West. I don't. I mean, I don't know if we. I guess we have to talk. Do we have to talk about him? I don't know. The latest is he's running for president. We all know he was going to run for president. He's already got a little merch made, Kanye or Ye. I'm sorry, his name is Ye now. He changed his name to Ye West. Um, and so he there's a video going, and it's not funny, but I laugh. He has a video going around that he tried to use his Apple Pay and he could not use it because Adidas has frozen every single dime he has, including whatever's connected to his Apple Pay. I didn't even know rich people used Apple Pay like that. And is his Apple Pay connected to an account that has $324 million in it? Because that is evidently (laughs) what they froze in terms, that's what they're suing him for. So I'm just like... I don't know. I guess I just think of like people like Kanye was having like gold bars in their basement or something, but I guess he did not plan for this. So, but he's, you know, he's making campaign videos. I think I saw somewhere and um, having back and forth with our queen, Vivica A. Fox. (laughs) What? Wait, I didn't hear this. I didn't hear this. He, He made a campaign video of all the celebrities that were like bad mouthing him, AKA just, you know, being honest. And he put the video out and I guess Vivica A. Fox is one of the celebrities in the video. And so she then went back to him and was like, thank you for watching my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He also, you know, he went to dinner with Donald Trump and took his anti-Semitic friend, Nick Fuentes, and to whom Donald said he didn't know. Uh, but the thing that made me laugh, uh, and there's all kinds of stuff going around about what happened. The dinner got really tense because Donald said something bad about Kim Kardashian and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but Kanye asked Mr. Trump if he'd like to be his running mate in 2024, <laughs> if he'd like to be his vice presidential candidate. <laughs> At which point, apparently, Mr. Trump got very angry and uh, it spiraled downward from there. And he, Donald Trump called him a troubled man. (laughs) Y'all, we are, this this is a real sad state of affairs. We're we're living in the last days. (laughs) Mm. Uh, You know, the Kanye thing is is such a phenomenal example of what happens when 
you are looking for validation from whiteness at all costs, like despite reason, despite all that, that like he, you know, so like Trump is like, I met with this guy who happens to be black, da, da, da. And, and Kanye still just like had a great meal with Trump. You're like, wow, you really are. I don't know if it's in a bubble. I don't know if it is willful delusion, but like you're, you just want to be accepted by white people so bad. And you know that like your whole sort of cultural cachet is being so unbelievably black. So the moment you experience backlash, it's like as a black man and da 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 But I too am exhausted by the Kanye and really worried about sort of how he's mobilizing identity to be anti-Semitic, right? Because then there are all these people who feel like they, you know, the moment you say he's anti-Semitic, he's like, but I'm black and da 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 But you're like, mm. You know, you're actually using this as a tool to hurt people. You're not actually in solidarity with Black people as you talk about this. And that's actually really dangerous because for better or for worse, people do look up to you and you have a huge platform. So whether we think it makes sense or not, and it doesn't, people are being exposed to it and the exposure itself is damaging. So, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, Kanye, he, he got his Twitter back. It's like, Elon, stop bringing all these people back on the platform. The ban people, keep them banned. Yeah. I'm... I'm still on the taking Kanye and um, Kyrie kind of seriously, like train that I was last time we spoke about this. Um, I've I've been just increasingly horrified by not necessarily the 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 person of the Kanye the Kyrie the Kyrie, but like seeing the people around them. So it's like the comments, the people mobilize, the people who agree, the people who are. Um, showing their true colors i'm like oh wow this is a this is a it, it almost reminds me of when i was living in georgia and being and you know growing up in suburban and rural georgia and then atlanta and then seeing trump happen and then me knowing in my head i'm like oh trump is about to be elected <laughs> but it seemed like nobody else did it kind of feels like the same thing's happening with um kanye not saying that kanye is going to be elected but that i think that there, I think that we, I think in the same way we are, we're looking at LGBT hate and we're looking at these, these horrible moments. I think that we are going to start seeing moments of, I almost hate saying it, but like moments of violence towards Jewish people, towards queer people in the name of black manhood and black male, um, male, uh, survival and, and, and hierarchy. And that kind of scares me. And I think, yeah, I think it's like a little easy to laugh now, but I, but I'm kind of curious in the next couple of years where this is going to lead to now that I'm seeing how many people agree and are feeling empowered by this, um, by this speech. So this, this news is disturbing because, you know, I love, I love the fashion girls. I live in New York city. I spent, spent money on, on, on some high fashion. I love, um, fashion as a, as, as an art form. We just saw the Mugler show. And I also think that fashion and specifically high fashion helps, uh, push culture and helps uh, start conversations and helps us think in a fantastical way. Helps us be provocative. I just believe. I just believe in the things that high fashion um, represents. However, <laughs> Balenciaga, Balenciaga has gone too far, um, and in their latest campaign, they had children. I cannot. I feel like dirty about to say this. 
Oh, goodness. They have children carrying bags that have BDSM armor on them, have other children, and have little creatively directed papers in front of, with children posing in front of them and have creative directly papers with the lawsuits of um ch- like child molestation and, ch- and, and child harm lawsuits behind it. And I'm just in my head like... Why why would we do that? Why what what is going on? And I'm actually really glad that I had so much time to think about this because in my head I'm like, you couldn't just create something like that and think it was okay and think that it was gonna sell some stuff. That's just not where your mind could be. But then the more I had time to think about it, it was, oh, somebody thought that they were making some type of provocative political commentary, probably, and it was pushing a button, and they didn't know that. A, people don't want to be pushed around child molestation and, and around and around those type of topics. And then also that every media, every artistic medium and specifically commercial medium is not the place to have certain types of conversation around certain things. And certain things shouldn't be artified. Some things should just need to be talk, talked about plainly. You don't need to make uh, editorials about those things in order to start a conversation or to push people to think about what we're what we're creating, what we're consuming. It's just gross and it makes no sense. And it also made me think about how little supervision or I don't supervision or thought is being made when these things are being created. And it made me think about social media and how we're just really creating provocative content and we're creating things that we think are going to get engagement. And there's just little to no cre- like critical thought about, hey, maybe it will get attention, but maybe it's too far. Maybe it will, maybe it will um, pu- push this whatever conversation, but maybe that's not the right way to push it. And I truly think that when it comes to Balenciaga, like this ha- like has to be an opportunity for people to say, no, this we're not going to do the social media thing and create controversy just for the sake of it because it's gross. This morning, of course, Kim Kardashian um, de- uh, denounced uh, the brand and said that she doesn't like it and that she's going to see where they go. And I don't know why, like, she's being treated like the first lady of, like, morality. Like, what? Like we're just going to trust <laughs> where she thinks, <laughs> where we think we should go. Where, like, where if, if she says it's okay, then that means that we should feel better about it. That doesn't quite make sense to me. But, yeah, it's still a cold, or excuse me, it's still like a, like a hot topic, so I don't know where everything's going to land. But I think that this, in a, in a generation that has made WAP, it has made so many controversial uh, things. The fact that we came to a space that said this is too far was really interesting. I feel like I haven't seen a situation like this that uh, that artists and fashion people have made where where they said, "Okay, this is too far." In a in a really really long time, you know. And I and I also grew up in the generation that saw Britney Spears on the cover of Rolling Stone hugging a Teletubby. Um and and children and and child like uh and clothes so this this feels like an interesting moment 
to see to see like what Gen Z and millennials and our generation thinks is too it's too it's too far of a push. I want to see what sh- y'all thought. Have y'all heard about this? Have y'all actually? Mm-hmm. Have y'all? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let me, there's a, well, let me show you the one photo. So I had seen some of the photos originally without context, and it was like kids holding a teddy bear in a harness, and I was like, okay, that's just bizarre, right? Mm-hmm. But I but like I didn't see the commentary about it, and then I saw this photo. And was like, there really is no world where you'd have a kid laying on their stomach in a romper, a Balenciaga teddy bear thing, harness bag with wine glasses laid out on the table in front of it. Like, this is only telling one story about partying and a rager and... It's not telling anything that is remotely age appropriate. It's not telling anything that like you could even convince me is about consent or even fun that a six-year-old or five-year-old could have. You know, like it just doesn't make sense. And it was good to see people push back. And, you know, also shout out to the internet because if not for social media, nobody would like, I would have never naturally come across these photos because I'm never looking at Balenciaga stuff. Uh, but but it has been interesting to see the conversation about it. And I actually wasn't surprised by celebrities being quiet about it, if not only because I'm like, who is, I don't, if you ask me who wears Balenciaga, literally the only people I could readily name are Kim and Kanye. I don't know. A, like, no, everybody just, wears Balenciaga. Rihanna wears Balenciaga. Yeah, oh, I don't even, wears all like I know is, brand. Huge. Yeah. I just know, I, like when I think of them, I'm like, Kim wore that Balenciaga tape thing. And Kanye's like I don't I can't name I mean, anybody else. This is I me not being in the fashion world. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I I just thought I'd put this out there. I don't know what they're gonna do to the, uh, the apology seems soft. So I don't ooh, I don't know. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this one though, as opposed to all these other kind of like high fashion, like either racist or just tone deaf or just whatever moments, is Balenciaga's actually suing the production company that did this shoot, right? So Balenciaga hires a production company. I think it's called North Six. Mm -hmm. And then North Six hires a photographer, right? But of course, Balenciaga is going to sign off on the photographer. So then they have this shoot and Balenciaga is saying that, you know, that the production company and the photographer are actually at fault because they are the ones that kind of put this whole creative together. Now, I don't know, not near one fashion brand that is going to let Anybody, especially a brand or a house like Balenciaga, is going to let a production company just blindly lead creative for a big ad campaign that I'm sure they're spending millions of dollars on. So it's going to be interesting because, again, now this is going to be a court proceeding, right? Balenciaga is suing North Six. And so all of these documents are going to be available for us to see at some point. But I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm wondering why just strategically Balenciaga would sue them because obviously we're going to, there's going to have to be depositions and requests for documents. And so we're going to see these emails and the truth is going to come to light, which if you just, you know, I, I, I just know a little bit about, about, about fashion and, and, and the process, but it is, it is rare for a, 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 a fashion house like Balenciaga what, what did I, not know about this creative before it was happening. And there were tons of Balenciaga people on, like, at the shoot. What I also will say about it, too, is that it does seem that 
out of all the all the kind of like legacy fashion houses, Balenciaga has been successfully convinced that they are out of out of out of touch. So the creative director who came on and kind of transformed it in the same way that Gucci, um, he actually just left um, last week. But like mm-hmm. just how like Gucci Gucci had got a facelift, it was like Balenciaga was not doing so well, and then somebody came it came in, a couple of creative directors came in and revitalized it. So it doesn't. It doesn't seem actually too far fetched that the people, the grown ups in the room, were like, "Well, let the kids do their thing and let them do whatever's edgy because we don't know and we're out of touch, and let them do handle the internet, social media stuff, and they'll do what's cool and they'll keep us afloat." And everything's been going good because it's been working like that until somebody with half a wit decides to make whatever type of commentary they're trying to make around children, and now you're in a in this type of moment. So I, I can kind of see that happening but it's still inexcusable of course um i i'm i'm trying to like figure out what i think i mean i think it's horrible right the the images are so wildly disturbing um and like you know for sure that the head honchos at like this is their holiday campaign they knew about this right they knew about this there was no i mean as diara said like this is brand critical and so a zillion people had to sign off on this and they thought it was fine and 15 minutes ago you condemned kanye for anti-semitic statements and so what you think is going to happen like i i don't i i like I do think that we think it actually reminds me of the Kanye lyric in um, whatever the throne song is like. Okay, auntie. uh, (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) It's provocative, right? Like we, this, this idea of things that are provocative without any boundaries is what I think, um, some 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 of the creatives, in fact, like I've been to a couple of art shows where I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not an authority on art and some art is provocative and some art is really just gratuitous. And I think we reward the overly provocative. And I think we have put like the line has just been pushed further and further and further. And so these people thought it was okay to put, you know, child porn, Supreme Court rulings with, you know, kids laying down in provocative poses with wine glasses and BDSM teddy bears. Like, ah, the whole thing is just like totally outrageous. But a group of people, not one person, a group of people were like, this is provocative. It will sell. And I think that just goes to further support the evidence that we are in the last days, my friend. Woo. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. 
But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P people. My news this week is about um, the country's top law schools boycotting U.S. News and World Report's ranking system. Um, And it's very interesting to me uh, because, um, as many people know, U.S. News and World Report is legendary for ranking not just law schools, but lots of things. And people live or die by these rankings. In fact, for law schools, um, there are 14 that uh, called the T14, which I think stands for top 14, that pretty much stay in the top 14 with Yale as number one and Harvard as number two and uh, Stanford and Georgetown and Columbia and Berkeley and, you know, a handful of schools that are always in the top of U.S. News and World Report's rankings. And that's largely how a lot of young people um, select which law schools they're going to go to. Um, but a number of these schools have decided to um, boycott, to withdraw participation in the rankings. And when I say withdraw participation, you have to submit a whole bunch of information to uh, to U.S. News and World Reports um, that help calculate where you are ranked. Um, but what these schools have basically said is, like, we're concerned about equity, we're concerned about ethics, we're concerned about our mission. And the rankings force you to focus on test scores, grades, employment, and it creates a, a, a real incentive to push towards sort of corporate law um, and sending kids to white shoe law firms and a, a disincentive. Um, the rankings actually penalize you for need-based aid, given scholarships to kids who need it, as opposed to merit-based aid. Um, the rankings um, force you to uh, select kids with higher LSAT scores. And many of these schools are actually pushing very hard to expand access to more than just the elites um, to make um, there are law programs open to more people and and to create lawyers who are not just going the firm route, but who are public defenders and who are, you know, taking on social justice issues. And in fact, you get penalized for that in the scoring system. Um, the dean of Georgetown's law school said that um, the U.S. News scoring system reflects a different set of priorities. He says Georgetown's mission is to educate lawyers, legal scholars, and citizens committed to the struggle for justice and protecting the rights of the most vulnerable among us. 
but the U.S. news scoring system reflects a different set of priorities. And so it's fascinating because um, the people, the the one of the first, the first, I think the first law school who pulled out was Yale, which is number one and has been number one. And uh, and then Harvard, which is number two, and then a number of these other schools that are in the top 14. And to some extent, those schools have the luxury of name recognition, tradition, endowments, credibility, you know, whatever. But all of these schools that are like in 15 to 200 <laughs> are like, well, wait a minute, I'm not exactly sure I'm a pullout, right? And... And so, you know, they are, many of them are worried because for some of them, um, like not everybody is going to go to the top 14 law schools. And so there are a whole bunch of other law schools who rely on those rankings so that people know about the opportunities there. And they're like, "Mm, maybe we're not going to withdraw. But it, it just, it goes to show how the media, right, a completely outside entity can drive the priorities of the whole law school system in America um, based on this ranking thing that, you know, is is uh, made up at best, right? Like they decided these are the priorities and here's how we're going to rank these law schools. And people make like million dollar decisions. The amount of money that many people borrow to go to law school is life-changing. Um, and they are making these decisions based on these rankings. And these top schools have said, this is not how we want to do it. And so I think um, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch how this plays out. There, you know, Yale and Harvard and Columbia and Stanford and Georgetown will not likely suffer too much. Um, But I do think that if other schools begin to join them, they have the power to change how we define success in legal careers, or at least in law school, um, uh, how we we define success for law schools by broadening the definition from just, you know, high-powered corporate money-making law to a broader swath of um, legal opportunities and and indicators of access that we don't currently prioritize right now. Um, Diara, I'm super interested to hear your take on this. Before Diara, I will say, because <laughs> I am also, we will save the best for last, Diara, because uh, you actually went to law school, is, uh, you know, it feels like for so long, nobody could challenge the rankings. Like they were, they, they were sort of, they had all the power they had the ability to define how people saw your university. You had to submit stuff. What's interesting about this moment is one, you know, because standardized tests are a big part of the rankings, if you, you know, all these schools are now going LSAT optional and the LSAT's a part of the, a big part of the score. And so, you know, by going LSAT optional, it seems like in some ways you're automatically challenging the rankings. So that's interesting. But it is sort of cool. It, I am interested to see if the big schools can challenge the formula enough to just like redo the, reimagine the way that we rank schools. And the reality is like the Harvards and Yale, they'll be fine. They're going to be, the top 14 are going to be fine. No matter what, the legacy reputation will keep them, they'll be there. And I even read something that said that um, 
that they're going to be ranked anyway. That the US News and World Report is going to still use publicly available information, whether they participate in sense of it. You know, they'll be fine. But like, can you actually redo the algorithm or like the the formula in a way that helps other people and use your pressure to do it? That is interesting. And to not have the media be the sole arbiter of what good and bad is, I do think is interesting. It's my two cents before we get the wisdom of Balanger. <laughs> Can I just say, like, I would be really interested in, I, I wonder about the role that student evaluations play in the rankings, right? Like, what what, what do your customers actually say about the education that they get? And I think there's a way to empower a different set of people to define success. I'm just curious if anybody on staff at U.S. News and World Reports has been to an HBCU. And where do homecomings and the quality of homecomings fall in into a college ranking? <laughs> Not what I thought she'd say, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I mean, what that, like, why that comes to mind for me is because there are three historically Black law schools, Howard, obviously, Southern, and then my alma mater, Texas Southern, Thurgood Marshall School of Law. Now, there, I think H- Howard's ranked like 100, which is absolutely absurd. It's just absurd, right? And then Southern and Texas Southern, I mean, I think they like, like, I think the last time I looked it up, they didn't even have like Thurgood Marshall School of Law on there. They had like Marshall, like they don't even know the name of the school. So I think partly it's like, I don't even think HBCUs in particular get a fair shot. And I think this applies to undergrad and graduate school. And I think if you're, I think the reasons why folks of color go to HBCUs, um, those those reasonings, those rationales are so far from anything that U.S. News World Report would like be based upon. Um, And so, I don't know, I have, I have, I have lots of thoughts around this, but 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 namely, I don't think that these rankings, I also don't, we can go into testing too. Like, I don't think any of these things are good indicators of how successful folks are going to be. I did terrible on my LSATs, I, but I always had super good grades and was in every single club you can think about and chose to go to Texas Southern because I wanted to go to HBC, HBCU Law School and too many kids from private schools I grew up with in D.C. went to Howard, so I wasn't going there. So um, I went to Texas Southern and I loved it. And I think, you know, graduate school, particularly when it comes to, to HBCUs, is, is, is a different ball game in terms of what the focus is on professionalizing students. Um, and so I don't know these. I mean, I know these rankings are important ultimately in, in the mainstream, but I paid no attention to them. I hope folks who are making this decision um, based off of whatever their own personal and professional needs are, make those decisions with with whatever um, their needs are in mind. Like I just, I don't know. I'm just I I don't I don't think it's I it, it obviously it's important, but I think for all the negative <laughs> all the negative reasons. But I don't. I just feel I just feel like HBCUs in particular are so far. Um, from being truly considered with with um, with these rankings, and I knew this wasn't even about HBCUs, but I made it about HBCUs. <laughs> no, they they mention they mention Howard. Um, they they literally say in the article, 
that Columbia and NYU tend to place large numbers of law school graduates into white shoe law firms, though so do institutions like the Howard University School of Law. And to me, right, that basically says the rankings are the rankings, but then there's this whole other world outside of things where people know if they want to get top Black law talent, they go to places like Howard, in addition to the the top schools. But I I do think that it matter like these these rankings matter differently for different people. That's and right. and I will say I sit on the board of, of trustees, board of directors at Georgetown, and we are regularly updated on where we are in, in the, the top. Yeah. Right. And and that matters to board members, that matters to alumni who are giving. Like they want to know that like we're one of the top schools. And so I I think that this to me, this is just another indicator of, I feel like the whole higher education system in the United States is like about to topple, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen that the amount of money that we pay for higher education is totally out of whack with, you know, the economy and, and we've, we're living through a student loan crisis and, you know, all of this stuff about kids who have gotten these degrees and can't get jobs and blah, blah, blah. And so there is a big question, I think, around higher education and what role it plays and how much we're willing to pay and all of that stuff. And I think this is just another indicator. This is another brick crumbling from this institution. I think the changes in workforce too, Kaya, also are going to play into this. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I don't see the next generations working at law firms. Not signing those, up for this stuff. No, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a new, it's a new New attitude, for sure. <laughs> so I think that'll be interesting to see, just from some of the young people that I mentor that are going into law firms that are just expecting vacations and not to work on the weekends. And I'm just like, are y'all okay? But good for them. What I was really thinking, if I'm being like quite honest with you, is I was like, is Yale the one where that Black student like got called the police on? Got the police called on them? Was that, was that Yale? And I was, I was, I was gonna. If, I'm pretty sure it was Yale, and I was like, well, there should be a totally different uh, ranking system as far as like, okay, you want to go to this school and not be traumatized? Are you black? <laughs> like, then maybe we should be thinking about this <laughs> differently. Also, was, Yale played a part in the slave trade, so I mean, there. That how about that? Where did that fall into? Yeah, the wait, wait, wait. I, Probably everybody in the T14 felt <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> What Miles is saying is we need a green book for these. I was, really, I was really saying you might need a little deeper uh, there. Like, like a piece of paper or your mind, child. Um. <laughs> My news. I just found this really cute, to be honest. My news is about Chance the Rapper and Vic Mensa. Now, granted, I don't know who Vic Mensa is from Adam, so I'm hoping. Oh, oh, oh. There's a... Yes, auntie. Oh, I yes. didn't do a Google, yes. so hopefully he ain't should, beat you, nobody up or no, you, you involved in some some you wildness. Should, you should do a oh, Google. Gosh. That is a fine black man. That is a fine oh, okay, black okay, man. Okay, okay, okay. Well, at least that... Uh, okay. Well, at least... <laughs> oh, Vic Mensa. Well, this is even more of a reason to want to fly to Ghana, y'all, for January. So, Can I just say, Vic Mensa was born in 1993. Do you know I was grown in 1993? Okay, sorry. Go ahead. 
I was not. <laughs> like graduated from college and all working, teaching, doing all the things. Lord, today, I feel like I can't even look at him to see if he's cute or not. He could be my child. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Ghana, come on. Let's talk about it, sis. Um, so Chance the Rapper and Vic Mensa, who now we know is is an attractive person, they are doing this I want to call it a revival, not a festival, a Black Star Line revival in Ghana. So they are putting together this music festival in Ghana. It's January 6th. It has a lot of amazing acts that we would like as aunties, kind of like Erica Badu, for example. But it's an incredible lineup. And also Manifest, who I went to college with, who is now like a big time rapper in Ghana. But... It is, it's, so they, these two were together in Chicago and just kind of like vibing and, and being creative together and started talking about Marcus Garvey and his movement to get Black folks back to Africa. And so, as we know, Marcus Garvey had a ship called the Black Star that he was raising money, trying to finance to, to get this ship to, to move peoples, Black peoples, back to Africa. Marcus Garvey still to this day, meanwhile, is like still like like a criminal in the eyes of the United States government. I think his son is doing a whole bunch of legal interventions to basically get Marcus Garvey exonerated because J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI did all the things that they could to make sure that Marcus Garvey was seen as basically a terrorist. But including sabotaging the cruise line. The cruise line, yeah. And so, but I just thought, I just thought it was wonderful, right? So it's like they wanted to kind of, you know, pay, you know, their respects and homage to, to Marcus Garvey and, 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 and that liberation movement. They also, you know, W. Du Bois was, was buried in Ghana in Accra. And so that kind of, you know, that was another reason they wanted to do this. And just understanding that Kwame Nkrumah was the one who expelled the British out of Ghana. And so there's just so much history and so much connectivity between Black Americans and Ghana, besides the fact that we are descendants of the place. And I just thought this was a beautiful thing to do. And the other thing that I thought was so compelling about this is they realized as big of rap stars as they both were, they'd never performed in West Africa. So that just gets me to thinking too, just like the scheming around concert promotions and where people think people will buy tickets and where there are connections is obviously lacking. So I thought this was just really cool that they're going to come together, do this in Ghana. I might try to go. If they, I just got to figure out if they have some chairs so I can sit down. <laughs> Girl, there's always a VIP. I was in Ghana in September when they did the other concerts. And I was, I was like, oh, I can't go to that because it's a free-for-all. <laughs> But my girl was like, oh, no, there's a VIP section. So if you want to go there, seats, there's a VIP section. I need that on a t-shirt. Girl, there's always a VIP. (laughs) (laughs) Not Kaya. I will say, so Chance and Vic are both just good people, too, which is really cool. Both love Black people, like, want to do right by Black people. Both of you guys, they grew up as friends together. They're part of the, like... Chicago artists who like all came up together in their own way. It's dope to see them do this. They both get back to Chicago heavy and it's cool they're doing this. I went to Accra a couple years ago. I have a lot of friends going back this year. I don't think I'm going to make it back this year, but loved it. Super black. I think we all, the, um, I think we all should see 
that part of the history, especially of uh, the slave trade, it really blew my mind and I'll never forget it. But it's cool to see, especially young Black men do something like this. It's really cool, especially because they do, you know, the critique is often, why are you going to another country and we got all these problems here? And they are two people who can legitimately say, we love our city. We do a lot in our city. We get back in our city, our roots in our city, and we are also doing this too. And there's a Garvey movie coming. Did you know that? There's a Marcus Garvey movie and Garvey, still holds the record as as being sort of the best Black organizer in American history. Like the number of Black people who joined his organization far surpasses almost anything we've ever seen, um, which is why he was targeted so heavy by the FBI. I'm I'm always a little bit like skeptical sometimes when somebody like researches somebody like Marcus Garvey and what he was doing and like two black men get together and the thing they come up with is like let's sell something to people like that oh that seems a little off uh <laughs> off the off the uh off, off off the brand of Marcus Garvey so that's like interesting that they were I mean to- I don't know Miles because Marcus Garvey seemed to be a hustler mofo. Like, he, everything involved. Like, yeah. wasn't it bonds? Like, he had to sell the bonds and the something with the bonds that he, then the got concert, you equity the, in the thing. The concert, the concert is free. The concert is free. They are bringing this to the people for free. So, so they're no flying free. black. So it was just for the people in Ghana. Free for the people in Ghana, yes. Got it. They are. They are. They don't have big sponsors. It seems like they're self-financing this. Um, so... Just a clarifying point. Okay, yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, 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 I'm always gonna just be. Listen, it's just I'm, I'm the, 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 the upper middle class to the elite black people's ideas of what to do in moments when they yeah, consume true. literature have always given me pause, or or different um uh idols that we have always gives me pause, and I'm like maybe not a concert like maybe something a little bit more whatever and then also the other thing that always gives me pause not saying you're not being a hater just i love them and i especially love vic mensa um if you want to give me a call and talk any of this, if you want to talk any of this out personally with me i'm available but the other thing too is um what always gives me pause about this too is the idea i don't know like what precautions are being taken as somebody who's visibly queer, who is visibly trans, who has friends who are visibly trans, who are visibly queer. And I always um I always think about that when things are happening on the mother uh on the motherland and the fact that the 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 the, the fact is a lot of um neighboring countries and in 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 places in Africa and the Caribbean are just not safe for visibly trans and um and queer people. And the, the are there any precautions or thoughts being happening around that, or is it just come at your own risk, or this is just not for that you know slice of uh, b- I think, black folks? Yeah, you know? yeah, Miles. I think that is absolutely. I mean, I think that's what that is what is missing, like yeah. visibly from yeah. this, or in terms of just like how it's being messaged. But I think that's an important piece of it, and I think a piece that. I guess the question is, how how do we get that to become part of entertainment culture? I mean, across all cultures. But I think in, in particular, like when I see, like I think musicians, it's great to know what they're thinking. And I'm glad that, you know, they like to be educated and that they are doing stuff for the culture sometimes. But I, I think after this Kanye thing, I just want them to make music for now. Like the, the best thing Kanye can do right now is just go in the studio 
and well, how maybe, we get, not use, maybe not how, use words, but use just how, how do we get on? How do we get on Kanye? Because, I, I, I because, <laughs> because I feel because can I, I feel can like, I take us back to chance? Well, can no, I take let's us take it. But I think I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot us back because I think partly it's like I think just to the argument around maybe a concert isn't the best thing. I think a concert is a great thing, Got right? It. I think I remember concerts like even you know may his memory. <laughs> perspective on him r.i.p michael jackson but like the way michael jackson was able to bring a crowd together the way that um the song we are the world when they would do that live like how that would bring people together in unity so i think there is something beautiful and unifying about music right i think that is true Absolutely. But I think to your point it is how do we how do we have guidelines around guidelines for lack of a better word for safety right keeping people safe in a in a space and i think it's for any space i think it's any festival whether it's sundance etc it's like how do we you know how how can we create expectation and acknowledgement around safety for for every for everyone yeah in particular people who are going to be most vulnerable yeah and i and i think to that point i think there's really a simple answer to that very like complex question which is probably just having the people who are of that experience baked into what you're thinking about Doing. i think it, so right. if you if you have two cis heterosexual um men talking to each other about what they think is cool or what they think will be interesting, they're just not going to think of certain things unless they're really dedicated to thinking critically and expansively and uh, one way to uh remedy that is just to have people of that experience on your team. Um, I was inspired by this for a number of reasons. So first of all, you know, I went to Ghana in for the first time in September. It was a transformative trip for me as well. And I think like what Ghana, one of the things that Ghana does is it really steeps you in this history of Black independence. And when you learn about what Kwame Nkrumah was trying to do. Like his thing was, it's not enough for Ghana to be free until all of Africa is free, until all Black people are free. And this sort of global Black, this idea of global Blackness, like Chance says, you know, he hopes that he can then do this in Haiti and in Jamaica and in other places in Africa across the diaspora. That starts a conversation. Like as Black Americans, Many of us don't have any connection to the diaspora Mm-mm. or don't think about ourselves as global Black citizens. And so I think he's surfacing a level of interconnectedness that um, a lot of Black Americans don't usually think about. Um I think he's using his platform for good. Like one of the issues is there are limited flights to Ghana and Chance was like, yo, United, can we have a conversation about this? And United has, has, is offering a year of discounted fares to Ghana because this young man decided to use his power to try to, you know, deal with the transportation issue. Um, I, I think it's, you know, there are a lot of people who who don't know the history of Marcus Garvey, a lot of young people, and because they follow Chance and because this thing is called the Black Star Line, you know, festival and whatnot, they will now go into this part of history. And, you know, this is my thing, right? Like, I think that these are the stories that aren't told, you're not taught in school. And people need, Black people need to know about Garvey and need to know what he did and need to know what the U.S. government interference was and need to know what his, and and I mean, when you look at the fact, and Krumah was, is the liberator of Africa 
the way we think of Simon Bolivar as the liberator of South America or what have you. And Nkrumah was deeply, deeply influenced. He came to the U.S. to go to school, deeply in- influenced by two U.S. thinkers, by Marcus Garvey and by W.E.B. Dubois. Like, this is our history. And and our young people don't know this history. So for me, shout out to Chance and Vic Mensa for opening, reopening this chapter, exposing people to the idea of global Blackness and... Um, and throwing a free concert in Ghana, you know, I'm I'm higher miles as your consultant. I will say, I, why can't I think of what the Global Citizen Festival was the festival that they did in September, also free. And Miles, from the pictures that I saw, the, the kids were out. Um, mm-hmm. The kids were out and styling and doing their thing. But I still think they should hire you as a consultant to make sure that everybody is safe. Yeah. I would say I, I did meet with a Ghanaian queer activists when I was in Ghana and they repeatedly highlighted how unsafe it was. That was like the overriding card. They reached out to me on Twitter. They were like, you're here. Can we meet? We met in the hotel and they were just like, it is not safe. We have created like pockets where we can get together and we can be in community Mm -hmm. with each other. But, but like the need to appear hyper-masculine and not be visibly intimate in any way in public and be like, you know, and I say that as someone who who actually met with activists in Ghana who were queer activists, um, they did remind me it was unsafe. So I'm interested to see how this plays out. My news um, is about the UK. There are, I feel like I say this every week, but there are very few things that shock me. And then I read something and I'm like, well, goodness, okay, this was wild. So in the UK, uh, in 2008, they started a studio called Boombox. And long story short is that this was a studio that was run by the police. It was an undercover sting operation music studio with the goal of, quote, stopping violence in a particular neighborhood where a set of Black men had been killed in Edmonton, North London. And, you know, the, what happened was that over a period of months, they the police essentially entrapped these young men uh, seduced them into engaging in illegal acts. So like, you know, one of the one of the stories, the police were like, hey, one of the undercover officers was like, hey, I need heroin. Can you get me heroin? The guy goes and gets heroin, then gets arrested for being the middleman in, in the scenario. And the undercover officers were older Black guys. Um, the men who were entrapped were in between 16 and 41, and they were convicted of offenses ranging from drug dealing, trafficking guns, and conspiracy to supply firearms. Um, And it cost half a million pounds uh, to to do this. It was called Operation Payzac. And, you know, there are a lot of sort of interesting details that I'm sure other people talk about. But the thing that I was just struck by is, you know, if people are participating in an illegal economy, if people are sort of doing things that you don't think make sense, around these issues, it normally is crimes of poverty, things like that. And instead of pouring support into this neighborhood, instead of setting young Black men up with resources to make different options, instead of like giving people really targeted opportunities and making it impossible for them to not choose cool opportunities for their families, you spend all this money to get older Black people to entrap younger Black people in the criminal enterprise with the end result not even being like, oh my God, we're going to entrap you and then force you into reason. Just jail. Like it's like you you entrap them, sends them to prison, and then 
And then what, right? Like, what, like, how did you make the lives better? Did you make the community safer in the long run? You know, they they sort of said that these guys were in gangs. The guys are like, were we in gang? You know, but to use a music studio where people are trying to be rappers, knowing that, you know, a lot of the raps are embellished and da-da, but, but using older Black men to, to like gain the trust of younger Black men as... Uh, as undercover officers is truly nasty work. I mean, that is, I read this and I was like, that is nasty work. And what an incredible waste of money and a payoff that actually doesn't make community safer in the end anyway, but does do a lot of damage about how we think about trust and community and how we think about camaraderie and brotherhood and family. I just read this and was just sad. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. That's the first thing my mind went is just what is the aftermath of this like massive uh, betrayal that happened and that that was orchestrated in the community and what happens um, af- afterwards and when, what are the ripple effects of there being such betrayal and does does uh, yeah that's, that's exactly where like my mind went. I thought it was so ironic. Um that the young man that they profiled in this article was, you know, a recent immigrant clearly living in a poor neighborhood. And he was like, this could be my big break. Like, I want to get into music. Studio time is too expensive. And this place has given us studio time for 10 pounds. And let me be friends with these people and see if I can break through because, like, I need an economic way. And he basically was doing his best to stay out of trouble and to by going into music and trying to make his way. And these people literally like made him do something illegal that he would not otherwise have done and ended up in jail for three years. And so, you know, it is, I mean, ironic is an understatement. It is entrapment. Um, there's no data that shows that this was effective um, or that this was a good use of money. And, um, and yeah, it just, all the things, this was, this, this was gross. It just, it's just also wild, like how much time goes into creating this whole scheme. Like wouldn't, like, I think to Duray's point too, just around like, if, if the goal is making the neighborhood safer, this is what you're putting time and energy and resources into that. That just doesn't make that much sense to me. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's something else. I mean, I think when I was my internship, I had an internship, a law internship in London. Um, and it was pretty wild. The solicitor that I work for is actually disbarred now. Um, and it, it worked out for me because he was so incompetent that I would actually go in court and represent people like in a British court, which was actually absurd, but it got me lots of practice. Did you have any um, experience or? Zero. Oh, zero. I was, no, I was, and I was, I mean, besides like growing up in my dad's criminal law practice my entire life, like, you know, I knew the basics. I was in college. Um, but not of the British legal system. No, right? not of the okay. civil okay. system. I mean, I'm I mean, just but not of the common law. No, 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 not at all. Um, but I had, I guess I did better than he would have done now that he is disbarred. But it gave me interesting insight, not just in, you know, I don't know. And of course, a lot of our clients were in Brixton. This office, law office, was in Brixton. And I just felt like folks were so 
unprotected and unseen in in their legal system. I think the difference being, I mean, I think this this article proves me wrong, but I feel like in the American legal system, Black people are preyed upon. And I feel like in the UK, they're just invisible. Um, except in this case where they're obviously preyed upon. But that, that just was my experience working in the courts and going to jails there. But this is... It's honestly something, Drew, I'm glad you've been bringing these articles from from the UK. and Because I think we should be talking more about a global perspective and what's happening to Black folks. Um, because maybe, maybe, you know, there is opportunity for unity and opportunity for cross-collaboration because clearly these things aren't happening in a vacuum. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frontal Williams slips through. Here's a shot. It's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. This week, we welcome author and researcher Wendy Sawyer on the pod to talk about the Prison Policy Initiative and her most recent report titled All Profit, No Risk, How the Bail Industry Exploits the Justice System. There are all these things about the way the justice system works that most of us don't have visibility into. And I know a lot, but you know, even the bail bonds, when it was like, I just didn't really understand how it worked until I talked to Wendy and what's wrong with it. So here we go. Hope that you learned too. And let's go. Wendy, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks to Ray. So happy to be here. So I've been a fan of you and PPI for a long time. Uh, and it is an honor to finally get you on the pod. But let's yeah. start with your story. How did you get to do this work? What's the organization that you help lead? Like, you know, what is what's the work you do and how'd you get here? Sure. So I'm the research director at the Prison Policy Initiative. Um, which is uh, a, basically a research organization um, that works on issues related to mass incarceration. We also do some advocacy around specific issues. Um, but really, our role is to um, put the information that people in the movement need to have more success on the ground in their fights um, to end mass incarceration. And how'd you get into this work? Did you like wake up one day and you're like, you know what, I'm going to like research jails and prisons. Or did you like, were you a protester and then you like came into re- like, how did, or were you, I don't know, were you researching something else and then stumbled yeah, into I, mass incarceration? 
I, you know, I am just a research nerd. This this fully developed out of, you know, research in college sort of sparked an interest that I just pursued from there. And then I found myself working in the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City. That was um, one of my first jobs sort of in the field, which was really uh, illuminating. Uh, and, and I realized that I thought that there was more potential to make change in sort of the research and advocacy role that I have than sort of within the system kind of change. Boom. Well, let's talk about, so everybody, I'm a huge fan of Prison Policy Initiative, big fan, and they have a new report out that Wendy helped to make happen uh, called All Profit, No Risk, How the Bail Industry Exploits the Legal System. So Wendy, walk us through, help us understand like what made you guys, what made you all even do this? And then, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is that I feel like people hear a lot about bail, but we never sort of like talk through like, what is bail? Why might it not be great? What are bail bondsmen? Is it predatory? Is it not? Like, you know, I'm, I'm interested in learning from you too. So sure. yes. Uh, sorry. What was the first half of your question again? Yeah. So let's start with uh, what made you all do this report? Oh, what, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We started doing this report on a tip from some folks at the bail project, actually. Um, we, who had sort of observed that this is a thing that that the bail bond industry is not paying forfeitures that they don't that they're not sort of being held accountable in the way that other folks who pay bail bonds are um, when people miss court dates. Um, so we sort of went digging just to see, you know, c- could we see if that was a widespread problem? You know, what what information existed about that already? Um, and it was really hard. There's not a lot of already collected data about this. I mean, really, it's something that was, <laughs> this is a project where the the plural of anecdote is data. So we just had to sort of scour the internet and dig and dig and dig. And we did find that actually, this is a huge widespread problem. This is not just, you know, in any one, you know, just an issue in one city or one county, but it was something that people over the years have been flagging but no one had really put it together that this is like a systemic problem. And let's zoom out. And can we talk about what is bail and mm-hmm. what do bail bondsmen do? And does everybody have bail bondsmen? <laughs> like, can you have bail without bail bondsmen? Yeah. Okay. So bail is uh, sort of the conditions of your release pre-trial. So if you get arrested and booked into jail, um, they, the court or somebody, a magistrate, somebody is going to determine sort of what you have to do to go home while you're awaiting trial. Um, More often than not, that's going to be financial conditions. Um, And that's largely because of the influence of the bail industry. Um, So typically they're going to set a bail amount uh, and then you have to pay that to go free. Or if you're like most people and too poor to afford the bail that's set, you're going to sit in jail until you either plead guilty just to go home or you find somebody who can put up the money for you, which is going to be a commercial bail bond agent most of the time. Okay. And this report is about commercial bail bonds agents. That's right. Okay. Can you talk us through like what they, so like say I can't afford bail and I'm like, I need some help. I go to a commercial bail bondsman and I say, like, what, what happens then? They're going to say, hmm, well, let me just look at you and your family and decide if I think 
you all can cover me in case you miss court. I'm going to, what we think is going to happen is that they're going to make sure you go to court, right? And if you don't, they're supposed to pay the court your full bond amount on your behalf. Um, But they're going to first decide, are you a good candidate for bail? They're going to decide if you're a good risk. And that's going to be based solely on your financial situation. They're going to ask you to give them a fee called a premium, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10%. And that's something you will never see again. That's just money right off the top. It's gone forever. Um, They're also going to ask you or your co-signers to put up some collateral. So it could be like a deed or a title to your car or something like that. So something else to back up. um, In addition to the premium? In addition to the fee. Yes. So they're covering all their bases. So there's no way they're going to lose money on this bet. Um, And then they will sort of post a bond, which is just a piece of paper. It is not actual cash, but sort of a promissory note. They're going to post that with the court and say, all right, I'm responsible for this person showing up in court and you're going to go home. So, so far, so good, except now you (laughs) have paid this fee that you'll never see again, whether or not you're convicted. Um, you may be on some kind of payment plan if you couldn't afford the whole premium. So you're going to have them sort of knocking on your door, asking you for money all the time. Um, and then potentially you could lose property that you put up as collateral. Um, so all these things are going on as your, as part of your contract with them. And what were you looking into in the report? I was looking into the question of, do they actually, <laughs> what they like to say is that they provide a public service at no cost to the taxpayer. This is their their favorite line to justify their existence and their really central role in the pretrial process. And our question was really, is that true? Like, to what extent are they actually providing public service? And to what extent are they not costing taxpayers? Are they really being held accountable? Are they doing anything to make sure people show up in court? are they doing anything to earn all of this money that they're extracting from people? That was the question we're trying to answer. And what did you find? Uh, Generally speaking, they are not held accountable. Um, They just sort of collect their money and go on their way. Seems like the most effort that, (laughs) that they put into this whole process is just trying to make sure they get paid. Um, And then you know, what, if you don't show up in court, generally speaking, like nothing really bad happens to them. You know, if, if I paid my own cash bail, if I just paid out of my own pocket, um, I would lose all of that bail money, right? It would be forfeited to the court. Um, but if they post a bond and I don't show up to court, they don't actually end up ever paying the court. Very rarely. They, how, how, how does that happen? (laughs) Uh, well, that's a great question. It it turns out that they have spent, the bail industry that is, has spent decades lobbying for a, a sort of an, a large array of rules um, that benefit them and let them kind of wiggle out of having to pay. Um, so we call these sort of loopholes in our report. These are things that they've lobbied for that give them an advantage that regular defendants don't have when they post their bond. Now, what would you say to people who are like, well, you know, there shouldn't be seat penalties when if people don't show up to court for anybody, right? 
When so, they say there should be, is that what you said? Now, what do you say to people who say there shouldn't be steep penalty? That like there shouldn't be a financial penalty if you don't show up to court. There should be like we should get you to come to court, but there shouldn't be a financial penalty. So why are we upset that there's no financial penalty for the bail bondsman? Well, yeah, obviously, I don't think there should be a penalty for not showing up in court. Financial one that is, especially when we're talking about people who are overwhelmingly poor, right, um, and can't afford fees on top of fees. Um, you know, you miss a doctor's appointment, they don't charge you for not showing up the doctors, right? So I don't know why this would be any different. But the reason to be upset that they're not paying is that they're profiting huge amounts of money that they're extracting from defendants and their families and their communities. And they're not doing anything for that money. But they get this really privileged position in the bail system, where they get to write all these bonds, they're making money hand over fist, everyone else is going broke. And they're just not doing anything for the system. So so why are we sort of subsidizing this whole industry that causes a lot of harm? Is it is it is there any place so first of all, the map that you have in this, I don't know why I thought that bail bonds were sort of like a rare thing, and then I saw the map and I was like, no, apparently not. Um is there any place that you saw that does have good oversight? Hmm. I would say no. I don't think I found any evidence of like really great oversight of the the commercial bail industry. There are some states that are doing it marginally better. Um, one example that comes to mind is Colorado, where um, they sort of have they have a system where they <laughs> they put bail bondsmen on the board, quote unquote, and the board is sort of this. Um, list of, of people who are in default for not paying forfeitures or for other violations. So they're not allowed to write bonds anymore. And this is a place where everyone can see, oh, okay, I shouldn't be accepting bonds from these folks. Um, in other places, what's far more common is that people break these rules, they're in default, they don't pay their, their forfeited bond amounts, and they just still keep on writing bonds. They keep on collecting money. And do we have a sense of I don't know why I didn't realize that there's a premium and you put up collateral. I mean, that feels sort of it's wild. A lot. Mm-hmm. Do they just auction off people? Like, how does the collateral piece work? I guess I'm just like, I literally, I didn't know that was a thing. So I'm right. It's, so if you, um, let's say they are somehow made to pay the bail forfeiture, right? So the court's saying, all right, your client didn't show up to court. Um, you now are on the hook for this money. So they've got this collateral that they can then liquidate. So they can sell it and then pay themselves back essentially with that. Um, so yeah, they essentially just take your stuff. That is wild. One of the things also that you put in here, you said <laughs> one of the things uh, in here that I was like, I want to talk to Wendy about this is that you write that bail bond agents can piggyback off of public pretrial service agencies. What does that mean? Yeah. So pretrial, pretrial service agencies are things that a lot of folks have set up to try and provide sort of more support at the pretrial uh, end of things. So you may have a defendant, for example, who's unemployed, who needs to be connected with housing, who needs to be connected with a job, who needs maybe court reminders. So someone to to tell them, oh, you've, you've got a court date on Tuesday. You know, they, they need additional support. Um, so one of the conditions that courts can set at that bail setting is they can say, all right, we're going to make sure that you work with pretrial services during this period while while your trial is pending. And they're going to sort of like keep you on track, let's say, while you're in that pretrial phase. Um, so these are publicly funded. Um, they 
are sort of like, they vary in the amount uh, that they're voluntary, I would say, uh, and in terms of sort of like what they require of people. But on the whole, it's it's a good service uh, when the option is basically financial ruin. Um, and what happens is that the, in a, well, in Colorado specifically, I write about that they did a study and they found that in most counties where there was a pretrial services agency, people were being set, having financial bond set. So they had to pay money bail and they had to do pretrial services, which meant that pretrial services was doing all the supervision and all of the support work that the bond agent should be doing. So the bond agent basically collects his fee and then disappears. Pretrial services does all the work. And then the person shows up in court and that's it. The, the, the bail agent didn't have to do anything, but they got to collect their money. Meanwhile, the taxpayer did have to pay for pretrial services to do that work. So, yes. The taxpayer <laughs> has to pay for pretrial services? Yes. Pretrial services what? are publicly funded. So that's something that we're paying for but the bail agents are profiting from. So that that kind of doubling up system is really unfair um, and really sort of gets at that line of like at no expense to the taxpayer because it does cost us money to supervise people. Okay, so here's a, this is a real push to understand um, is, so if we think about bail bondsmen as exploiting people, I could see some people in Baltimore, people are like, well, it's the only way I can get out of, Jail, right? Like that's I've heard a lot of people in Baltimore when we talk about like the bail bondsman being bad, they're mm-hmm. like, Well, if I didn't have the bail bondsman, then I'd be sitting in jail. Mm-hmm. What like what do you say to that? I'm I'm like legitimately curious. We at Campaign Zero, we don't have a campaign on bail, so I am I'm a learner in this call. Yeah. Um, I mean, unfortunately, that is the position people find themselves in. That is, I think, a total failure, a total policy failure that we have to rely on these predatory lenders to secure freedom for people who, who really aren't posing much of a risk at all, um, if, if any risk at all. And uh, there are just so many other ways that judges can sort of set conditions to make sure people show up in court. They have a lot of options. They can be setting unsecured bonds, for example, which is when, okay, if you don't show up in court, you got to pay the bail money, but you don't have to put it up up front, right? You can go today and if you don't show up, then... We're going to ask you to That's a thing? it up later. That's a thing. Unsecured Where? bonds are a thing. I'm not sure exactly. But, I've but never I, heard of that. Yeah. Unsecured bonds are a thing. And there have been studies that show that they have the same kind of court appearance rates as commercial bail bonds. So the, that's another thing that, that bail bondsmen like to brag about is that they, they're better at getting people to show up in court, which is not true. Um, they can also do pretrial services. They can do partially secured bonds, which is where you put up like um, sort of a deposit. You So you could pay like 10% of the amount to the court directly. And then if you don't show up to court, then you owe the rest of it. So that's something that makes a lot of sense. Illinois did that for a really long time. Um, or Chicago, I guess I'm thinking of specifically. Um, they recently eliminated all forms of money bail. But for a long time, they did that sort of deposit bond system, uh, which if you're going to pay your 10%, why not pay it to the court instead of to this private business. 
So what's what's next in terms of the the contours of the the research world and, and bond and bail that we need to be asking questions about? Like I I have to imagine that you probably learned more stuff in this that you're like, oh my goodness, we can't include it in this, but these are issues. What does that look like? I mean, what's next is right now. Essentially, there are hundreds of different experiments going on around the country in different ways to make our our criminal justice system and specifically our pretrial systems more fair um, and to take that profit motive out of the, out of pretrial release decisions. I think that we're just going to be sort of looking to see what happens in those places. And so far the evidence is really promising in places that have done some form of bail reform. We've, we've looked at those jurisdictions and we've said, Oh, look, this guy didn't fall. Like crime rates didn't go soaring, you know, like, Actually, things stayed pretty much the same and in many ways got better, right? People went home, kept their jobs, their families didn't go through that trauma of having somebody go to jail. So there are there, there are sort of lots of different things that we're we're watching right now just to see what's going on and, and to see what works best. And I think that's sort of the direction this is headed is figuring out how we can do this in a way that um is safe and fair and equitable and take sort of the profit motive out of all this. Well, I learned a lot. Uh, thank you for coming to let us know about the latest research on, on the bail bondsman. We got to have you back because you all do such incredible work, but there are two questions that we ask everybody before they go. The first is what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Hmm. Um, Advice that stuck with me. This is going to sound terrible. My dad told me never refuse money. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I can't say that I never refuse money, but it stuck with me. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's terrible. I like it. Uh, the, the, The second one is, what do you say to all the people who feel like they've done all the things, right? They protested, they emailed, they testified, they ran for office, they read your study, they joined our work, da-da-da, and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I mean, you just got to keep going. What What's the alternative? Um, you know, the alternative is despair. I think you just got to keep going, and that's where you draw sort of strength and inspiration. Boom. Let everybody know how they can stay in touch with you and your work. Sure. We're at prisonpolicy.org. That's probably the best place to find our work. And you can contact us through our contact forms there. Uh, Twitter too. Instagram. So we are prison policy on Twitter and on Instagram. Cool. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod. I can't wait to have you back. All right. Thank you. See you later. Okay. Take care. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Charlotte Lambs. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 
25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through. Here's a shot. It's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. Hammers it home. Oh, my goodness. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.